Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Louder Than a Riot. Before we begin this episode, we have a quick favor to ask. Tell us what you really think about the show by completing a short anonymous survey now at npr.org slash louder survey. Yeah, it's quick and you'll be doing all of us at Louder Than a Riot a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.org slash louder survey. Appreciate y'all. A warning before we begin. This podcast is explicit in every way. We got a whole fight going on down here in Portland, man. What you're hearing is a contraband cell phone video shot from inside a prison cell. We need some help, man. Can't even breathe in this bitch, bro. I can't even fucking breathe, man. There's a whole fight going on down there, man. Smoke fills the hallway. Trash is piled up on the concrete floor. Somewhere in this prison, something is burning. We've been like this since 1 o'clock this morning, man. Down at 8 o'clock. And we don't believe we're like this right here. This video, being streamed on Facebook Live, shows only one angle. The view from a cell. And all the while, the prisoners are stuck. Helpless. Not knowing if they're about to be burned alive. All they can do is watch. Not trying to die in here, man. I'm going live for y'all to see this shit, man. I'm trying to stay strong, bro. This video is from inside Mississippi State Penitentiary, a.k.a. Parchman, Mississippi's most notorious prison, where prisoners have been protesting or rioting, depending on who you ask, over inhumane prison conditions since the end of 2019. And now, the prison is under lockdown. Calls for prison reform are rising after a spike in violence in correctional facilities in Mississippi. And critics consider Mississippi's prison system to be among America's most troubled. Between the end of December 2019 and January 2020, nine people died in Mississippi's prison system due to things like diabetic shock, neglect, malnutrition, even possibly a virus that wasn't yet named but would soon become a global pandemic. And the lockdown isn't calming things down. This early morning fight you can hear in the video is between cellmates in Parchman's Unit 29. It's the cell just across the hall from prisoner Trevante Riley. He goes by T. Riley. And he told his story to two lawyers after his release. We studied college for officers to help us, you know what I'm saying? They want help, so I, I just took the initiative to go on and make a video. T. Riley is currently 28 years old, and he was serving five years for marijuana possession at Rankin County when he got into a fight and was sent to Parchment. Eventually, he ended up in Unit 29, and he'd been there for about a year and a half before he filmed that video. Y'all can, man. Y'all called the police department. We need some help now. Unit 29 has some of the most inhumane conditions at Parchment, Which is saying a lot, because Parchment itself has a reputation. It's Mississippi's oldest prison. It's also the only max security prison for men in the state. And it's one of the most run-down, unkempt facilities with the least amount of resources. Now, this fight that wakes T. Riley up, it's not some quick squabble either. It just keeps going on and on. 4 a.m., 5 a.m. 6 a.m., 7 a.m. And these guys are fighting to the death. Don't let that knife go, guys! Don't let that knife go! Do not let that knife go! So another inmate does the only thing in his power to get the attention of the guards or a nurse to stop the fight. He lights a fire. The whole cell block starts to fill with smoke. But T. Riley has asthma. He's struggling to breathe. He knows they need help, so... Around 7.45 a.m., he pulls out his contraband cell phone and goes live from his Facebook account. This shit crazy, man. I need all y'all guesses. A wet towel on your face, bro. Don't let him kill you. You've been fighting for your life for four hours. T-Rally's live lasts almost an hour. And viewers watch as the hall fills up with more smoke. This ain't no way, man. Growing up, man, I ain't never think, never in my life thought I had to go through some shit like this, man. 
Never. I never in my life, bro. 20 years old, man. I ain't never think I go through shit, experience of shit like you, bro. We had officers like come in the building. Like you can see it in the video. He went upstairs. And we said, when them guys were telling him what's going on, you know what I'm saying, the hell was happening. So he was like, is he dead? We were like, no. He turned back around and went down the stairs. You heard that? T. Riley says the guard asked if one of the men in the cell was dead. And when they said he wasn't, the guard left. But 36-year-old Denoris Howell was killed in the fight that morning. After nearly an hour of filming, T. Riley ended his live stream. That's when the guards finally came to the floor. But by that time, another inmate had already put the fire out. The COs, they searched T. Riley's cell. And they found a cell phone and a knife. He says they confiscated both and left him in there, in the smoke-filled unit. It's devastating. It, it, it was, it, it, you know, it's either killed or be killed at that, that kind of place. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. And this is Louder Than a Riot. Where we chase the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. In our final episode, we weigh the realities of reforming America's prison industrial complex with the ambitions of abolishing it completely. And we look at how hip-hop fits in. Does rap's cult of celebrity help or hurt the movement. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com louder to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe has an arsenal of sensors and cameras that protect every inch of your home. Simply Safe has your back 24/7 with professional monitoring for break-in, fire, flooding, or medical emergencies. You can easily set it up yourself in about 30 minutes. Get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/louder. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial. That cell phone video taken at Parchman shows some serious human rights violations. But Parchman Prison is not unique. This isn't new. As one of America's oldest penitentiaries, the practices at Parchman date back to slavery. And like we said in the first episode of this series, the growth and explosion of prisons in America has dramatically changed the prison industrial complex. Prison development has gone up even as crime rates have gone down. All series, we've been highlighting stories of rappers impacted by mass incarceration. Not to show you how hip-hop is under the gun, but to show you all the ways everyday black and brown folk are under it. And simultaneously, all year long, Black Lives Matter protests around the globe have been giving us a new language for the struggle. We've gone from fuck the police to defund the police. Mm. And to a lot of America, it's impossible to distinguish the two. They're now chanting defund the police. What do the mobs want? Policing to be equitable. Re-envisioning public safety. Moving funds to community resources. When I say defund, you say police. What happens if you do that? We have total chaos. There won't be defunding, there won't be... A dismantling of our police. Totally opposed to defunding the police officers. I guess you can use a snappy slogan like defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it. Hip-hop was always rooted in freeing black folks, our bodies, our minds, from an oppressive state that was never conceived for our benefit in the first place. Mm. But as rap became more popular and profitable, 
It became so immersed in this capitalist come-up that it makes it harder to be critical of the prison industrial complex, a system built on commodifying Black bodies, just like the industry that's engulfed the art form. Yeah, we shot ourselves to the top of the charts. We shot ourselves in the foot. Mm. But you know what? Black music has always been our voice, our vehicle, our weapon, our solace. And hip-hop, more than any other genre, has been at the forefront of the conversation about what needs to change in America. So in recent years, certain players have emerged to change up the rules of engagement. When COVID happened, prisons became ground zero for the pandemic. It amplified all the racial inequality that America's built on and that the prison system is steeped in. But it also revealed that some of the reforms that we've been being told for decades were impossible were suddenly not only possible, but necessary. Yeah, things like letting prisoners out early. And where the state failed, hip-hop stepped up, sending masks to infamous institutions like Rikers and even Parchment. The fact that hip-hop provided basic safety to people locked up shows how deeply entrenched we are in a prison system that's clearly keeping no one safe. This is too big a thing to fully grapple with in a single episode, but these are the questions that have been guiding us to a path forward. First, we look into the lawsuit funded by Jay-Z to amend the atrocities happening at Parchman Prison. What does Parchman show us about the history of prisons and the fight to reform them. Then we break down how hip-hop's ability to critique America's prison system has changed. Is the celebrity rebranding of the decades-old fight actually hindering real progress? And finally, we explore a world beyond reform. No Name and Miriam Kaba school us on where the fight to abolish prisons is at and where it can go. And we ask, is it the artist's job to make revolution irresistible? Back in January, Memphis rapper Yo Gotti's phone started blowing up out of nowhere. People started like direct messaging me pictures and videos. And then I, like my brother and a couple people was, was texting my phone videos and, and pictures. We in the bitch to die, man. 2020, we all die. T Riley's video of the fire and fight at Parchment was going viral. That's how it landed in Gotti's DMs. It was one of a number of Parchment videos flying around the internet that month. Gotti still remembers watching them for the first time. You wouldn't even want to see an animal living like this. You know, black mold on their sheets, black mold on the walls, feces everywhere. No electricity, that people cold. You don't want to go to prison and die. And you go to prison to get rehabilitated, come home and hope to be a better person. These videos were an SOS. And for Gotti, they hit especially close to home. And I was raised through prisons. Yeah, Gotti grew up in Memphis practically spitting distance from the Mississippi state line, about two-hour drive from Parchment. He'd always heard stories about Parchment. Gotti's pops was in and out of prison. Gotti and his brother were raised by his mom and his aunties. And he says half of them had been in federal penitentiaries, too. I was used to, to the process of pulling up to a prison, getting searched, walking in, seeing your people, leaving without them, and wondering on why they can't leave when you leave. And when Gotti was 15, his brother got locked up, too. Once my brother went to prison, it's like I became the man of the house. Nagati had been hustling since he was about 12. But with his brother gone, he started getting even deeper in the streets. At the same time, he was watching rap videos on TV. You know, Rap City and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know, he started spitting a little bit on the side, just for fun. His brother's friends were in the streets with him, too. But they started to see music as his out. So they kept pushing him towards it. I remember one of my OGs saying, like, if you go make it in the music, you can then come back and change all our lives. We can't really change your life. You know what I'm saying? And at the time, I was so young, I couldn't really even understand what he meant or what he was saying. Gotti kept at it. And now, years later, he's one of the most respected names in Southern rap. So when those videos and pictures of what was happening down at Parchman started
started flooding his DMs, Gotti remembered those words. You can change all our lives. We can't really change your life. So Gotti says he took that video and he reached out to his management company, Rock Nation. He kind of responded to it like real fast, like 24 hours, 48 hours. We was putting a plan together and, and trying to figure out what was going on and if it was anything we could do. And what was happening in these videos definitely looked unconstitutional. Cruel and unusual punishment. So instead of taking it to Twitter, Rock Nation took that thing to trial. And they went with a law firm that had boots on the ground in Mississippi to do it. I can remember driving past it and driving through it as a school kid and just hearing the lessons of it. You never want to go there. That's attorney Marcy Croft. Growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, Marcy saw how Parchman cast a shadow across the whole state. It's the ultimate boogeyman location that kind of preconditions you as an adult, especially if you stay here, to think, well, that's the default. It's supposed to be like that. She came on board to start building Rock Nation's case against the Mississippi Department of Corrections, MDOC for short. In January, right around the time T. Riley's video was going viral, a reporter at a press conference asked Governor Phil Bryant who's responsible for what's happening in Mississippi's prisons. The inmates, the inmates are the ones that take each other's lives. The inmates are the one that fashion weapons uh, out of metal. The inmates are the one that, uh, that do the damage to the, to the very uh, rooms that they are living in. I, I get so frustrated every time I hear the state or the governor or someone try to blame gang violence on what happened when the reality is gang violence doesn't make mold grow on the walls. Gang violence doesn't make it rain through the ceiling. Game violence doesn't cause rats or roaches or bird feces in their food or lack of delivering medicine. One of the people Marcy's team is representing in this lawsuit has been inside a parchment for 18 years, serving a life sentence. And he's there now. So for his safety, we're not using his name. So he asked us to go instead by the alias Freedom. Yeah, how you doing? It's rotten. I definitely appreciate you in this in this uh, situation being able to contact us. Do you have a sense of like how long you'll be able to talk tonight? We spoke to Freedom by a contraband cell phone, just like the one T. Riley had for the video. The quality is pretty rough, so you got to listen closely. Now, Freedom, he's housed in Unit 29, but he's in a different building than T. Riley. Still, he's experienced a lot of similar type fires. He guesses there have been maybe hundreds of fires like that since he got to parchment. Most of the times the fire station, uh, the buildings were the lockdown zone, meaning that they're right behind the gate all day long. And you have no way to go to the office, so you have to have a chance to get the office. If you set a fire, it's automatic that they have to come. If you set a fire, he says... It's automatic that the guards have to come. The family members of those inside have said it's pretty much impossible to get information about what's going on inside the walls of that prison. And Freedom says that's literally by design. Everything here is hidden behind a door. Like, you could call up here or try to come here and ask to see what's going on for Anything. Let me see my people or my family members. And it's not going to happen. They keep it locked up like that. And therefore, they can do whatever they want. And nobody knows. Freedom says this lawsuit is the first time he's seen living conditions improve somewhat at Parchment. Things only started to change when Rock Nation's lawyer showed up. So what what are you hoping that'll come from this... this um this Rock Nation lawsuit. It'll change the mind of some of y'all. I'm saying, get them to actually open their eyes and see that we may be locked up still human too. It's a little hard to hear, but Freedom is basically saying he hopes this lawsuit opens people's eyes to how bad conditions are in Parchment. That he and the prisoners there may be locked up, but they're human too. Now, in January, Marcy's team filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of 33 prisoners saying that MDOC is violating the Constitution. This class action, of course, means that the ruling could apply to everyone in the prison. 
The suit says MDOT created conditions at Parchment that inflict cruel and unusual punishment. The state has allowed Parchment to deteriorate so bad that it lacks basic safety and protection from violence. It deprives inmates of adequate medical care. It fails to provide adequate food and water. To gather evidence for the suit, Marcy needed to go inside Parchment to conduct in-person interviews. The videos, like the one T. Riley shot, they could hardly prepare her for the experience of being there. What the videos don't do is they don't, they don't give you the smell. They don't give you that, that burned ember smell in every housing unit. They don't give you the rotting iron smell. They don't give you the, the sweat, the heat, the mold, the humidity here in Mississippi. You know, I'm standing there in Unit 29, which is supposed to be maximum security, and there are 22 people that have died, you know, and it's been on lockdown. And so you're kind of nervous at first. You don't know what you're going into. Before her first interview, Marcy carefully read through all the files on the incarcerated men she'd be speaking with, including what they were in for. Then she spent the day talking to them. And then after that, I don't think I opened another folder. I don't think I read what anybody else did, because after that, it didn't matter. Didn't matter, because no matter where they came from or how long they were in there for, they were all telling the same story. They weren't getting food. They weren't getting water. They didn't have heat. Uh, When we went to interview some clients, it was the first time they had been outside in over a year. Marcy's firm even brought in experts to assess the living conditions at Parchman. And their reports basically laid it out. This place, it's unlivable. But in a statement to NPR, MDOC refutes those claims, saying, quote, the department denies allegations of unconstitutional conditions associated with the Rock Nation lawsuit and will respond accordingly in court. MDOC declined to comment further. In addition to suing MDOC, Rock Nation is also suing the parent company of the prison's medical provider. It's called Centurion. It's a for-profit, publicly traded company. Rock Nation is arguing that Centurion is failing to provide medical care for the prisoners. Sometimes fires, like the one T. Riley videotaped and the hundreds Freedom has witnessed, are the only way that these incarcerated men get medical attention. In order to succeed with the class action lawsuits, Marcy and her team would have to prove something called deliberate indifference. Not bringing prisoners to their medical exams because you don't want everyone to see just how bad off they are. That's deliberate indifference, right? Refusing to call in medical when, uh, when a prisoner is lying there barely able to breathe and his heart rate has dropped so low. That's deliberate indifference. And that intentional neglect, it really matters, especially now, under the weight of this global pandemic. And while conducting interviews for the current lawsuits, Marcy's team uncovered a COVID-19 outbreak inside Parchment. If the prison couldn't give people proper medical care before, you can imagine how well social distancing is going inside Parchment. But you know what, Rodney? Here's the thing. This isn't the first lawsuit against Parchment. And it's far from the first attempt to ever reform it. Yeah, it turns out the history of reform goes way back with Parchment. Like, way, way back. You could even go so far as to say reform is built into the very foundation of the prison. Gotti learned this history at the beginning of the lawsuit. As we dig into it, we realized this has been going on years and years before the riot ever happened and, and it came to light. Parchment was a a slave plantation first. You know, before it was even a prison, it was a slave plantation. Yeah, Gotti's right. Parchment's racist past has everything to do with this egregious present. (laughs) History really does repeat itself. Well, really, it begins with, of course, it begins with the Black Codes that come about after slavery. That's Ralph Eubanks. He's born and raised Mississippi, and he graduated from the University of Mississippi. Now, he teaches English and Southern Studies there. And he's something of a historian on parchment. He really showed us that to understand the prison today, you got to understand how it came to be. Parchment Prison started off as Parchment Farm. It's named after the family who ran their plantation there. 
on land stolen from the Choctaw Nation. After the Civil War, slave owners, like the Parchmans, they did everything they could to regain power. Once they run the Republicans out of control during Reconstruction, then they have to have some means of controlling the Black people. First, they take the vote. Then they begin to use this means of social control of putting them to work for the state. After the war, the South was broke. But they still had a lot of work to do, right? And they needed a cheap source of labor. So they created a prisoner leasing system. They would arrest black folk for a variety of trumped-up and miscellaneous violations. And those people were leased for $9 a person to farmers and business owners, i.e. former slave owners. And people rarely outlived their sentences. This system of labor was slavery by any other name. At the time, Mississippi Governor James Vardaman was against convict leasing. But get why? Because it made business owners rich at the expense of the state. He felt that he wanted to get the black criminal element off the streets, put them to work, and use them, use their labor to um, to make money for the state of Mississippi. So in 1900, that government began to replace the prisoner leasing system with physical prisons. Prisons that were framed as a reform to the leasing system. Let that marinate. If the leasing system was slavery by another name, then this kind of prison reform put the state in charge of that slavery. Governor Vardaman, he helped plan the purchase of Parchment Farm. It officially opened as a prison in 1901. And the money from the prison labor flowed right back into the state's piggy bank. For a long time, Parchment, after income taxes in Mississippi, was the second um, highest revenue driver for the state of Mississippi. Incarcerated people at Parchment still worked in the same fields that their enslaved ancestors once plowed and tended. Only real difference? Fruits and vegetables replaced cotton and soybeans. And at Parchment, the history of failed reform repeats itself over and over again. It's like an echo. There have been suits to reform parchment by organizations like the ACLU, dating back to 1971, 1999, 2002, and 2005. In each case, the claims of terrible conditions and medical care are always the same. But every time they get called out for it, parchment comes up with a temporary fix. That means... The reforms that come out of these lawsuits, they never last. It's a game of whack-a-mole. But that's the way that the state of Mississippi has been confronting the issues in Parchment. We'll close, oh, violence there, close that. Violence comes up there, oh, close that. And then it just, it just keeps going. The failure of prison reform at Parchment, it's reflective of the larger state of prisons. Overcrowding, Prison labor and inadequate health care are hallmarks of prisons across the country. Yeah, and we asked Gotti, what are the big picture solutions to change in Parchment, to change in Mississippi, beyond these reform attempts every few years? It's a huge question, and Gotti admitted to not having all the answers. I think all prisons is cages, and I don't think you should, you know, I, I wouldn't say I want to see anybody in a cage, but I don't, I don't know how to, like, you know, I don't think I'm the one to answer, like, how you govern prisons to the outside of, like, where you put people for whatever they do or whatever. So what role should hip-hop play in reforming America's prisons? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, creating greater freedom for changemakers to create a truly representative economy. Marguerite Casey Foundation believes working people and their families should have the power to shape our institutions, our democracy, and our economy. Shifting power 
Powering Freedom. Learn more about the foundation at www.caseygrants.org and connect with the foundation on Twitter at Casey Grants and on Facebook. Support for NPR and the following message come from Quantacy and Associates, a full-service creative agency and studio helping brands grow by pushing culture in the right direction while introducing a new era of thinking. With a business model designed to help companies excel, they specialize in melding the worlds of marketing, content, technology, and influence. Quantacy works with brands of all sizes, ranging from Fortune 100 clients, public figures, and small businesses. Find out more at Quantacy.com. What do John Legend, Jennifer Lopez, and celebrity chef Samin Nosrat all have in common? I've interviewed them. Join me, Sam Sanders, every week as I talk with people in the culture who deserve your attention. Subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Charges reduced this afternoon against rapper Meek Mill for driving a dirt bike recklessly in Inwood. This video shows the rapper on his bike Wednesday night, but police did not arrest him until last night, shortly after a charity basketball game. When Meek Mill was sent back to prison on a minor parole violation near the end of 2017, he became the shot heard around the hip-hop nation. Desiree texted me from court that they're going to get me two years. We got to do something. I texted back right away. The first thing I said was, they messed with the wrong people. That's Van Jones, the news commentator political pundit, and former attorney. And we should mention, he's also managed by Rock Nation. And right there, he's talking about Desiree Perez, Rock Nation's COO. Now, for every case we've talked about on this show, there's a social media hashtag associated with it. Free Mac, free drama, free Bobby. But the free meat campaign put money and power behind hip-hop's relationship to criminal justice reform, like never before. Yeah, with meat being a Rock Nation society, Jay-Z had a personal and financial stake in the welfare of the Philly MC. The campaign around Meek wasn't organic. It was strategic. An op-ed in the New York Times with Jay-Z's byline, a viral social media campaign, an Amazon Prime documentary. See, Meek's release from prison in 2018, it set the stage for he and Jay-Z's rollout of the new Reform Alliance. Now, Jay-Z's remained pretty hush about his strategy, but you can see it in the moves Rock Nation makes, like funding 21 Savage's legal defense in his high-profile immigration case, or raising awareness about the inhumane conditions at Rikers Island with the Khalif Browder documentary. Now, all these efforts are bankrolled by Rock Nation's deep pockets and co-signed by founding partners of Reform Alliance, partners who happen to be pretty fat cats in the world of sports and tech. The Avengers of billionaires, you know what I mean? And when Reform Alliance launched, Rock Nation brought on Van to lead it. Now, instead of just suing individual institutions like Parchman, or even representing individual people who say they're being targeted unfairly, Reform says their goal is to take the fight to the next level. Rather than me trying to represent you and you and you and you, just go to the state legislature and change the law to let everybody out or to shorten everybody's time on probation or everybody's time on parole. For Team Rock, this is a power play they can afford, but it also operates under the system of power already in play. This is the principle of reform. Prisons are here, they're part of society, so let's make them safe and fair. And while reform efforts have failed in the past, Team Rock's lawyer Marcy says it's the money and the influence that makes the difference. Whether it's the ACLU or the Southern Poverty Law Center or any other well-meaning group, they have very limited resources and they have budgets. And so the state, I think, is used to running out the clock. Uh, you know, delay as used to fighting back is used to being the one with the big purse. But when you come in with the support of Team Rock, with the support of Reform, with the support of JC, of Yogati, of all those people, um, you're finally playing on the same field with the same equipment. But for Van, the connection between hip-hop and criminal justice reform is not only about wealth and power. It's also what rappers have been talking about for years. So much of what hip-hop is about is uh, confronting the system. Whether you're talking about conscious rap or gangster rap, both are intensely in this struggle with law and legitimacy and the system and how it works and both sides of hip-hop put you right in the middle of the justice system. 
to reform the justice system, Rock Nation has brought on some unlikely partners, including close friends of President Donald Trump. But Van seems to think that this is exactly what makes his approach effective. This willingness to reach across the aisle is what made him attractive to conservatives like the Koch brothers in the first place. I was a part of the group that got the Koch brothers to go sit down with Valerie Jarrett at the White House under Obama to say, we're going to fight you on everything else, but on this one issue, can we have a ceasefire? So then when Obama went to visit a prison, the first sitting president to visit a prison, notice, he was never attacked. Fox News didn't attack him. Rush Limbaugh didn't attack him. Glenn Beck didn't attack him. Nobody attacked him because there had been a ceasefire orchestrated on both sides. I mean, (laughs) you talk about going to the Koch brothers. Was there any kind of moral dilemma for you to go on and sitting down? How did you rationalize it for yourself? Look, man, I've been black my whole life. Every black person in America has to deal with the same problem. You can think whatever the hell you want to think, and then you got your boss. And you got to figure out you're going to deal with your boss. You can be as black nationalist as you want to be. You can be the most militant person in, in your headphones as you want to be, but here come your landlord. And you got to figure out you're going to deal with your landlord or your professor or anything else. So, no, I had no moral dilemma about it because being black is to deal with nuance, contradiction. But there's a bigger contradiction right at the heart of celebrity reform. It's hard for celebrity reformers to directly challenge the system when it's the system that led to their success. Mm, okay. Kim Kardashian already knew Jared Kushner, so it was easy to look past his politics and work with him to get Alice Marie Johnson out of prison. That made it even easier for Kanye to meet with President Trump in the Oval Office and bring up prison reform. Van may believe in systemic change, but he believes you have to compromise within the current system in order to get there, even when it means working quietly with the Trump White House. But there are other people whose work with prisons has led them to very different conclusions. One of those people is Professor Ralph Eubanks, our Parchman historian. His revelations about prisons came straight out of prison. When Ralph was working at the Library of Congress, he started to listen to the Alan Lomax recordings of the field hollers and work songs at Parchman Prison. And I'm listening to this stuff, and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is, this is the soundtrack of my life. I used to see that as a child. You know, I would see those men working, and I would hear that off in the distance, driving through the Delta. People make jokes that the blues starts always starts off with, with I woke up this morning. But the reason it starts off that I woke up this morning is they're taking you through the whole day. They didn't think they were going to get through the day. So they always, so they tell this story. And that's why it becomes this epic poem. Each blues song is a story of survival. Each song that comes out of those field hollers it's a story of survival. Man, Sid, does that not remind you of Killer Mike telling us that hip-hop is our blues? Yeah, and Ralph made that same connection between blues, rock, and all the way up to today's soundtrack of rap. I mean, that idea that you know, Andre 3000 says the South had something to say. We have to listen to everything that the South has had to say. No matter how the music evolved, the testimonies from inside the country's prison system have always been there. That connection with the music is is so important um, because it connects us with, with the past if we'll only really engage with it. And sometimes we think that that past doesn't have a lot to say to us, just like I thought you know, when I was 19 years old, that it had nothing to do with me. And now I realize it has everything to do with me. And late last year, pre-COVID, Ralph taught a literature class inside one of the units at Parchman. After his first visit, he realized how much he'd internalized the stereotypes of what being incarcerated is, of what being a prisoner means. He started questioning his own bias. The way that it's all designed is that we never have to engage with it. 
This is evil. You don't don't go there. The people who are there must be evil. So if there are evil people there, they belong there. Why does anything need to change? So it's there's a very circular logic that keeps all of this this entire system perpetuated. We asked Ralph straight up if he thinks prisons can be reformed. In studying the prison's history and meeting the men inside, he says no. And he's having more conversations in his own circles about prison abolition. And I have to say that I'm beginning to lean in that direction myself, which I which really surprises me. Why does it surprise you? Uh, I think because of the way that, the very straight-laced way I was brought up. You know, it's like, you did everything the right way. And I'm, I'm the child of two Tuskegeans. So, you know, black respectability kind of looms large in, in my <laughs> worldview. And, and that idea of black respectability, those are not people who are respectable. And realizing, yeah, well, a lot of what I was taught about that was really wrong. These are people who are worthy of respect and dignity. They just had it all taken from them. If the reason you were to be locked up was to think about what it was that you'd done and then prepare to live a life outside of that. But that's not how the system works. It's a lie. We've all been taught a lie. So Ralph's revelation about prisons has come from testimonies in the blues, right? But other people who've been fighting mass incarceration for years, their realizations came straight out of hip-hop. A ballad behind bars, or you could say real rock from the rock. An unusual the way that they were talking about the prison industrial complex really was illuminating for somebody at that stage of my life. That's Miriam Kaba. She's one of the foremost prison industrial complex abolitionists today. But when she was a teenager in the 80s, growing up in New York, hip-hop was one of the first things that allowed Miriam to imagine a world without prisons. She remembers hearing Public Enemy for the first time. You know, I've got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. The beginning of that was like, what? And then the video images of that, right? Because this is MTV land time. And it was like, wait a minute, what is he talking about? I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. You were in the rise of the criminalization, particularly of young Black people in the city. And you could see your friends were getting locked away. You were going to visit people and bail them out of Rikers. Like all this stuff was going on, but like you didn't have an analysis. That song is, you know, at the end of the day, this person has escaped. Like, how is that possible? So you mean like you can get out of this system? There's a freedom route and a freedom land that could possibly come from this? Come on, 53 brothers on a run and we are gone. A ceiling is moved off of your imagination that all of a sudden it was not just something that happened to a bunch of people who looked like you. Oh, there's a targeting here of folks? Like, oh, racism is at work? Literally, I can see it in a different way because of this music and because of these lyrics and because of this poetic. You don't have to be compliant you don't have to be obedient. You can question, and not just question, you could take action. That's huge. And that's huge for teenagers to hear. As a prison industrial complex, or PIC abolitionist, Miriam says their goals go further than reform. And it's not just about ending prisons completely. It's deeper than that. A big part of PIC abolition is to transform the conditions that would allow for prisons, policing, and surveillance to exist in the first place. But should the artists calling those conditions out also be the ones required to fix them?
This message comes from NPR sponsor Yogi T. We know that sometimes finding a moment for yourself isn't so simple, but self-care doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it can be as simple as brewing yourself a warm, comforting cup of Yogi Honey Lavender Stress Relief Tea. With soothing aromatics like lavender, chamomile, and lemon balm, this relaxing herbal tea blend encourages you to take a moment to pause, step away from the chaos of the day, and sip your way to a more stress-free state of mind. Find your flow with Yogi Tea. What does it take to really make amends? And how should we navigate our digital spaces? I'm Anoush Samarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers who help us answer some of life's biggest questions. Join us. Listen now. Rap music's one of the only places where it, it actually contends with that idea of what police mean. That's Brandon Jenkins, a.k.a. Jinx. He's a music journalist and cultural critic. Now, hip-hop fans know him from the podcast Mogul for being a co-host on Revolt TV's State of the Culture. He's one of the culture's best barometers about what's changing in America. Hip-hop has to realize it's not just like lyrics on a song. This is like our greatest export, you know, like 100%. Like we don't make shit in America, you know, but we make hip-hop. And it goes around the globe and it comes back to us. But just like Jinx lays out, is the biggest cultural export, hip-hop, contends with one of the building blocks of America, the justice system. We look to hip-hop to kind of solve a lot of problems. Every rapper has a verse or a, a line or a song in their catalog where they've tried to imagine a world where they are not perceived as criminals, where their people are not perceived as criminals, or at the very least, like, there's no cops to make them criminals. It's hard to fantasize about what you want. You're like, I want a, a better world. And you're like, all right, how? And so... I think um, hip-hop should help us dream that up. And if it can't, it should amplify the dreams of people that have said it. It's time for us, hip-hop, to help us create new icons, new celebrities that don't rap. You know, people that, that are vetted in this and have done their, you know, put in their 10,000 hours. Or maybe it's time to end the cult of celebrity altogether. Because while a lot of celebrities may recognize the inherent problems with the system and even come from communities suffering under it, that doesn't necessarily make them experts when it comes to fixing it. If you don't have the right way of analyzing the whole, then what you end up doing is reinforcing the very thing you say you want to help dismantle. Miriam Cabo looks at efforts from Rock Nation and Jay-Z, and she sees the way their very success hinders their understanding of the work. This is why you have unaccountable people speaking for themselves and their 10 friends. And that is not, that is not sustainable for movement. It may reduce harm for one or two people, but it isn't going to transform that system because there's no base. Who is Jay-Z's constituency? Who are the people he's actually accountable to? Who is the person who says to Jay-Z, now you can't do that. Because this is a collective endeavor and a collective fight, and we have a say in this, too. Abolitionists see capitalism as a key part of the problem. But reformers, including a lot of hip-hop entrepreneurs, see capitalism as a tool they can use to fix the system. Miriam says, unlike what people think, abolitionists do support certain kinds of reforms— most people who subscribe to prison industrial complex abolition um, take on some steps along the way to try to actually chip away at the power of that system. You have to make sure that what you're creating doesn't make the thing that you're trying to dismantle stronger. So it's not as simple as do you support reform or do you not? That's not, that's not actually the question at hand. The question is, are you trying to make sure that this thing shrinks in power or not? Shifting your perspective to unlearn the systems that we've been raised under, it can be uncomfortable. And learning as a public figure, even more so. But just like in every other era, there are vanguards in rap who are stepping up to help with the growing pains. So I think you're seeing that now in this current moment when you see an artist like No Name, 
when you have Fatima trying to publicly learn. Miriam points to Fatima Warner, a.k.a. Chicago rapper No Name, as the future of delivering an abolitionist framework through an artistic lens. No Name is an artist who not only raps about it, but she uses her platform on Twitter to constantly share what she's learning about it. Uh, maybe this round two. Government cinematic American drive through, eat the apple pie in the morning and bury the strange fruit. She's also been running the No Name Book Club for over a year now. The monthly club is all about discussing social justice literature. And it sends books to prisoners for free. She's literally trying to help people unlearn. And since this summer, she's never been more vocal. Fatima is somebody who is literally has positioned herself as a learner and has actually taken the responsibility of reaching out to various people to learn more. Notice how Miriam's calling no name by her birth name, Fatima, and not her rap moniker. She's interested in the person as much as the symbolism of what the rapper's doing. And No Name herself says she's learned so much from Miriam already. Her analysis and her work has definitely been pivotal to me. I don't know if if rappers right now, if we're really moving in the political framework that like hip-hop kind of initially had. It's just been hard to know what to do. So we called up No Name and Miriam and got them together for an extended conversation about the role an artist has in a movement like abolition. And whether or not rappers should even be carrying that weight. Yeah, and Rodney, as they talked, what they had to say was just so good. I think we got to just let it play. Mm, let's do it. I'd love to ask you uh, a question. You know, part of why I was happy and excited to talk with you today is because I love talking about or thinking about creativity and art and PIC abolition together um, as things that actually work together. You know, for me, PIC abolition is so much about imagining a new way. Um, And as, you know, Ruthie Gilmore says all the time that abolition is about making things as much as it is about dismantling. And I love the fact that art and creativity are so much about making things. And I wonder for you, if you're feeling excited in this moment that we're currently in um, about making things. And if you are, like, what are you making? Um, I'm excited. I I am excited. I've been slowly trying to work on my album um, and piecing that together. But I my industry is so corrupt and so trash that it's like I, I would be dishonest if I just sat here and was like oh yeah I'm like so excited mm. and especially thinking about rap and its inception I feel like it was a lot more pan-Africanist and it, it thought a lot more about um, the global south and black people across the diaspora and how American imperialism affects those folks as well I think sometimes I can just get into a negative headspace because I'm I'm wanting to make art mm-hmm. that is more revolutionary and I'm looking to folks like Fela Kuti and Bob Marley and Nina Simone and, and these artists of my past and even some even some like like Nas and his early stuff and like mm-hmm. some some other folks who are extremely political in their music and that's just not there's really no space for that. It's weird when you're sort of the only one who's like screaming about how you know, how messed up capitalism is and how it's sort of altered our relationship with our art, like as as black artists. um, It's all for consumerism these days. So it's, it's, yes, yes, to answer your question, I am excited, but also I am like, ugh, (laughs) if that makes sense. It does make sense. I was also thinking about... um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Catlett. Um, she said years ago that art is only important to the extent that it aids in the liberation of our people. And the idea of that is not uncontroversial, right? You know, that, that view that art should exist for its own sake um, is something that people kind of want to uplift. It's something that I virulently don't share as a concept. I don't think oppressed people have the luxury of not tying art to being in the service of movement building and social justice. I wonder what you think about that. I a thousand percent agree. Um, I think about that constantly because I, especially like hip hop, like we're talking about a genre that literally came out of one of like, like the ghetto, like the hood, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? The most oppressed group of people in America decided to collectively create this art form for our liberation to like echo our messages out to larger audiences so they know like hey this is what is happening in our communities i came into hip-hop as a person who did not create this art form a community a community that i come from made this work and now i'm able to like sustain myself so i feel it's my responsibility to be as honest and radical in my music as i possibly can art isn't just existing as art in a in like some dark cave it's being sold you know (laughs) to millions of white people thinking about revolutionary concepts and ideas it it helps when you can package it in a way that's enjoyable to listen to beautiful to look at you know I, i know for me i i made book club but i struggle so much with reading and yeah the things that help lead me toward wanting to learn more has been art and music and film. I definitely think we could be as as like creators pushing for something a bit more revolutionary and a less like individualist. I have one question in relation to um, abolition becoming, I don't want to say mainstream because Twitter is still definitely a bubble, but a lot more popular. I'm stunned, frankly. That's what I keep telling people all the time. I'm like, when I see people say abolish police, I'm I'm in shock. So I want to say something about popularity. Um, again, you know, of course it's relative and it's still a deeply unpopular vision and it's going to remain unpopular for some time. And that's okay. Because I will tell you that when I was in rooms, um, I don't know, 10 years ago, people thought we were, you know, we were completely bonkers off our mind. This is how I know things shift, is that um, when Ferguson happened and all the demands were about body cameras and things like that, and to come to this moment six years later, and the demand is to defund and abolish police for some people, like in actually a significant number of people, I mean, my God, that's incredible to me. And I just imagine a whole generation of young people being born in this moment. When I was growing up, there was no concept. I mean, it just, I I couldn't have imagined no police and no prisons and no surveillance. It didn't even occur as a possibility. And now, you know, the New York Times is talking about it and people are on CNN talking about it. It isn't a static idea, it's a dynamic one that is going to constantly evolve and change. And so I just constantly see it that way. So I actually feel super hopeful. Like I know it sounds whatever, but I do. I'm somebody who consistently believes that if we act in service of a vision that's liberatory, that we will actually be able to transform our conditions. I believe it in the like the marrow of my bones. I love that. I love thinking about it as like this living, breathing thing that can be, you know, that we can expand and challenge and and like grow with as a as a politic, as a framework, as a like a, a vision for this revolutionary future. 
the problem has been all along is that we have taken a system, a carceral system, one way of addressing harm, and we've made that the only way we do it. And so if you have, if you have a hammer, everything is a nail, and that's the problem, right? And that's not what a vision of PIC abolition calls for. It's actually a collective project. And that whole process of that is so much about creativity, so much about imagination. And we are going to have to build it together. And that means we're going to have to argue over stuff. Doing that book club in a collective way, in a communal way, is so amazing and wonderful because it's about the building of community and the collective making of a thing. Do you feel that rappers or hip-hop artists have a, a specific role in creating that community because we do bring people together in concert but it's typically for our own capitalist game so i'm just wondering like do you feel that we have a specific responsibility especially since we come from communities that are hyper surveilled and policed and um you know attacked by carceral logics and things I think we all have responsibility to change our world and circumstances, so yes. But here's the thing that I think is could be so useful and is so useful about, you know, your work is you have this affinity for language that helps people to kind of see themselves differently sometimes and see the world differently. It's invaluable, which is why it's saddening to me when I see people with that much skill and an ability who choose not to help us do that for whatever the reason is that they do. They don't have to, but it's great if they do. Yeah, I I just want us to dream a little bit bigger than reform. Yes. <laughs> that's that's all I'm wanting from, from us. I just love that you're doing what you're doing, Fatima. Thank you. That means so much to me, you don't even know. You're doing great. Thank you guys so Sydney, so much for having us. Yes. <laughs> yes. This has been great. You know what I love about this conversation, Rodney, is that this whole season started off with something of a conspiracy theory. Right. Of that purported meeting between all these powers in the music industry and the prison industrial complex. And we're ending the series hosting a conversation between two real forces in music and in the push against the prison industrial complex and in ending mass incarceration in America. Mm, yeah, that's kind of deep, huh? Yeah. What does hip-hop, and by extension, Black America look like if these kind of conversations are happening and being imagined mm -hmm. and resonating more than the kind of meeting that we opened the season with. It would totally change the trajectory of hip-hop culture and, by extension, American pop culture. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What I hear in the conversation between them is the acknowledgement of uncertainty, but a type of hopefulness that I don't feel like we've had in the, in the course of dissecting this so far. Like hip hop has always done, it gives you the language and the vocabulary to codify what's happening around you in ways that you didn't know how to express. Cause so much of what's happening in hip hop, it can feel like it's happening in a vacuum, but it's not, it's bigger than hip hop. The criminalization of hip hop is a microcosm of the criminalization of Black America. Yeah, and all of that just makes me think about the fact that at the end of the day, it's not even really about the rappers, who in some ways are really the privileged among us, but about how this inequality is affecting and impacting all of us. I mean, one thing that continues to resonate with me is the conversation we had at the top of this episode with the parchment prisoner on his contraband cell phone, calling us and telling us about all the stuff that he's experiencing and all the death that he's living through in Parchment. And the thing that really struck me about that conversation is when I asked him what he wanted his alias to be. And his answer 
I mean, here I am, a cynical journalist on the other side of the phone, doubting that what he was hoping for and living for was even possible. Mm. In some ways, it really just kind of checked me in the moment. Did you come up with a uh, with an alias yet that you want to use? Oh, man, that's that topic. I hadn't even thought about it. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. Freedom. Can we use that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why you want to use that? That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I hope for everything. Freedom. That's all I want. Give me an opportunity to get back out and show that I'm not the same person I was when I was 20 years old. Let me go home and take care of my mom. My dad just passed. Ain't nobody that'll do this right now. That's my biggest. This episode was written by me, Rodney Carmichael, and Sam Leeds. Our editors are Chinjirai Kumanyika, Michael May, and Chiquita Pascal. And it was produced by Sam Leeds, with help from Matt Ozug, Dustin DeSoto, and Adelina Lansianese. Josh Newell's our engineer. Senior supervising producers are Rachel Neal and Nigeri Eaton. And shout out to the bigwigs, Steve Nelson, Lauren Anki, and Anya Grunman. Original music for this whole series by the super dope, super talented Casa Overall. And special thanks to the one and only Ramteen Ara Bluey. Our digital editor is Jacob Gans, with special help from Dayu Tyler Amin and Marissa LaRusso. Our fact checker is Will Chase. Yeah, and thanks to all our family and friends for holding us down through these last two years of making this show. What up, Ori? <laughs> As always, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than a Riot. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to follow along with the music you heard on this episode and throughout this whole series, check out the Louder Than a Riot playlist on Apple Music and Spotify now. And if you want to email us... It's louder at npr.org. And just a reminder, we still would love to hear from you on our audience survey. Go to npr.org slash louder survey and do your thing. Yeah, this is your chance to go off. Tell us what you're feeling and what you're not about the show. That's npr.org slash louder survey. Thank you. From NPR Music, this has been Louder Than a Riot.